All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 43 through 51. Message is entitled this morning, Passover, Grace, Not Race. And as you're turning to Exodus 12, please remember what Jesus said, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron and on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Let's pray. Father, your word says, and we believe it to be true, that the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. Lord, we need more than physical ears to hear this morning, more than physical eyes. We pray that your spirit now would come and open up our eyes, just as you opened up Lydia's eyes of old, to be able to pay attention to the things that Paul was saying and believe. And Lord, help us to do the same. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So if you're just now joining us, this is immediately after the children of Israel are released from Egypt. God poured 10 plagues out upon Egypt, said, let my people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And, and finally, after the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, the, the death of the Passover lamb, Israel was released. Now, what's fascinating about this particular passage is the order in which it falls. Oftentimes in scripture, pay attention to the way that God puts this part over here and then this bit over here. And, and you, you know that all of scripture is inspired, which also means the order of scripture is inspired. And now we find uh, God speaking about the regulations of Passover again. And the question arises immediately, why didn't he just place this section back in verses 1 through 28 where he talked about the other regulations of Passover? Why place it here? And the answer is that God wants to put his particular saving grace on display again. 
this new nation of Israel, because that's what's happening. It's coming out of Egypt, and as it comes out of Egypt, it's being born into a new nation. And God wants the laws of Israel to be on display that these laws are entirely different than Egypt. The laws of pagan nations like Egypt were capricious. They were arbitrary. Um, Certainly none of you have heard this phrase before in our day, you know, uh, rules for thee and not for me. we, we, We see that a lot, don't we? This is the same thread that runs through every pagan nation. And the reason is because Egypt worshiped so many gods. They didn't have one God. They didn't have the most high God, the living God. And so there was no one standard for all peoples. There was no equality of law. The Hebrews, so we, can, we know that the Hebrews didn't have the same protections as the Egyptian citizens, much less than Pharaoh, right? But right at this point, as Israel is being born into a nation, God institutes an entirely different paradigm. Look at verse 49. There shall be one law, one Torah in the Hebrew for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. One law. This was a radical break from the polytheistic paganism of Egypt, which did not have a one law that universally bound all men. So for the first time, this is how radical this is, for the first time in the ancient world uh, since the fall, God gives birth to a nation where they could say liberty and justice for all. Some of you know that phrase from our early school days. I, I wonder how many of our children know it today. Now, though this law applies generally, here it specifically applies to the Passover. This is the first place in the scriptures where um, the two sacraments of the Old Testament, circumcision and Passover, are linked together. And so the question is, is well, who could participate in Passover? Who had a right to that meal with God and his people? Uh, do you have to be an ethnic Jew? Uh, was race the determining factor? The answer is no, no. In order to celebrate this redemption, one had to come to the Lord by faith alone, and this was publicly expressed in circumcision. Philip Ryken says here, quote, These regulations show that God has always offered salvation to everyone. No one has ever been excluded from coming to God simply on the basis of race. Even in the Old Testament, God provided a way for outsiders to come into his family and receive his saving grace. The way to come was by faith in the God of Israel, and circumcision was the public way of trusting in his promise of salvation, end quote. And and this is precisely what the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper demonstrate today. Here's our big idea. The sacraments show that salvation is always by God's grace and never by, by our race or any other consideration. 
always by grace, never because of our race or any other consideration, not by the works of the law, not by our morality, not by our bloodlines, not by the color of our skin, the will of the flesh. Every human work and circumstance is excluded. The vital thing, the vital thing is the saving grace of God. We know the verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's look then at our doctrine. The the transition between this section and the last section is verse 42. There the Lord reminded them on the eve of their redemption, their, their deliverance, that they were to keep this night in Israel throughout all generations. Now, the bulk of instructions on how to keep the Passover were given in verses 1 through 28. But remember that when the Israelites left Egypt, who went with them? A mixed multitude, verse 38 says. And so these verses exist right here to show us, well, out of this mixed multitude, who can participate in this redemptive meal? So let's look at verse 43. Sorry, 42. No, it's 43. 42, 43, 42. Um, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron... Now, uh, I want to stop right there. Uh, Commentators think that God spoke these words at Succoth. Remember, that was their first destination after leaving Egypt in verse 37. So we continue. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute, the requirement of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. That word for foreigner signifies any non-Israelite who temporarily dwells with the people of God. Um, these types of foreigners, these temporary, you know, um, dwellers were excluded from Passover. And this is repeated and it's expounded upon in verse 45. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. A hired worker was, was like a migrant worker who temporarily uh, resided in Israel because of work. They needed work. God says that along with those foreigners, hired workers were also to be excluded. Now, we shouldn't be deaf to this, right? Like in our radical egalitarian culture, exclusion is about the worst word or the worst idea that you could hold to. Um, in fact, exclusion is a, is a heresy in America today. The only people that you can safely exclude are Christians, uh, but everyone else must be unquestionably included and affirmed. And so we hear, you know, that's why you Christians are mean, because you exclude others who don't fit your standards. But on the contrary, right here, this particular exclusion is the most, for these foreigners and these hired workers, is the most loving thing that God could have done for these people. Because what this exclusion said was, you're not right with God. You're still in your sin. How can you celebrate what you don't have? 
You see, this, this principle of exclusion didn't rest on ethnicity. They, were excluded because, they weren't excluded because they were outside of the genetic line of Abraham. They were excluded because they had not yet come to God through saving faith. How do we know? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 44. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. Now, one note on this, this slavery here. This slavery here that God had permitted was not the type of chattel slavery that we see in American history. Uh, man stealing was a crime that God said was punishable by death. Exodus 21, 16. This type of slavery here, whether it's native or foreign, um, foreigner, is one who sells himself into indentured servitude in order to pay off a debt, Leviticus 25, 39. Or it's a person who was captured in war, and instead of being put to death, they were put into service, Numbers 31, 9. And when we get to Exodus 21, you know, in a short while, a uh, couple years, um, we'll see that many of God's rules protected these slaves. <laughs> Uh, the, the, God had rules that uh, you know, obeyed the greatest commandments. Love, your, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to have to wait, though. Uh, the point here is to explain who can participate in Passover. Here, we read that household slaves, whether they are native or foreign-born, could participate in Passover so long as they were circumcised first. Uh, these slaves were to be circumcised precisely because they were part of the household and therefore considered to be part of the covenant. Uh, Genesis 17, 10 through 13 is what God told Abraham. Now, add to this verse 48. If a stranger, it's a Gentile, shall sojourn with you, so this foreigner des desires to permanently live with Israel. And they would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Now, this stranger is different than the foreigner in verses 43 and 45. Certainly, he's not an ethnic Jew, but he desires to be a spiritual Jew. Like Ruth, her, the confession of this person's heart is, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Ruth 1.16. In such a case for these sojourners, God says, let all their males be circumcised. And then we read halfway through verse 48. Then at that point, he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. He shall be as a native of the land. Now that is amazing. That is a break with all pagan nations. It's a break with all pagan religion. Gentiles, non-Jews, could be counted as a native of the land. That is, as Jews themselves. As God promised Abraham that he would have, uh, be a blessing to all nations. This isn't merely a, a New Testament doctrine. From the very birth of Israel's nationhood, Gentiles could be included with the people of God, full citizens, not only civilly, but ecclesiastically, by faith. 
And this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And in our passage, the way that this sojourner publicly expressed his faith is through circumcision. That's why the end of verse 48 says, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Those who refuse to be circumcised, um, those who refuse to come to the Lord by faith were not allowed to share in the Passover. Now, what's so helpful about this passage is that this is the first place where circumcision and Passover are linked together. And in doing so, we learn something about these sacraments. Circumcision was the sacrament of initiation into God's covenant. It was the, it was the front door. Passover was the sacrament of communion with God. It was the dinner table inside the house. Children, boys and girls, um, I, I think that you can understand this difference between um, initiation and communion really, really easily. Um, what must take place before a man and a woman um, live together can live together, can sleep together, and can have children together. What must happen first? They must be married. That's right. Uh, they must enter into the covenant of marriage by taking vows before God. And at that wedding ceremony, the covenant is initiated, and only then can they have communion with each other uh, in the same house, in the same bed. Uh, to, to reverse the order... What is that called? It's called adultery, right? And it, so it lies about marriage. And the same thing is, is true here. To, to allow any male to skip circumcision and come directly to Passover lied about the gospel. It lied about the grace of God. Circumcision means something. Michael Morales puts it this way. Circumcision was a sign and seal of one's membership in the congregation of Israel, symbolizing the removal of defilement. Circumcision functions to seal a new identity as just as Abram's circumcision um, came with his name change to Abraham. Circumcision meant recognizing the necessity of rebirth, of regeneration by God's electing grace. And so the gospel message in the Old Testament to the nations was this, Sim simplified, repent and be circumcised. Now, if you were a woman, um, then you were covered by your father or your husband's circumcision since they represented the family covenantally. It's not the sacrament by itself that God is concerned with. Um, the sacrament tells a story. It tells a gospel story that sinners must be cleansed from sin 
to re- and receive the righteousness of, of God in order to be counted among God's people. So to, to come to Passover apart from circumcision was to lie about the gospel. It, it, it's saying, I can come to God on my own terms, uh, apart from free grace, apart from faith. I can come in my own merit. And so that brings us then to our doctrine, that the sacraments show that salvation is always by God's grace and never because of our race or any other consideration. So just two, two proofs of this. Number one, circumcision of the heart. Number one is circumcision of the heart. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The context here is that Moses is prophesying that Israel ultimately would turn away from God. And they would be removed from the very land that God gave them. But God promises to restore them. And he says this in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Do you you see it? Physical circumcision pointed to the desperate need to be circumcised in the heart, to have our own defiled nature, our sin removed so that we could be with God. So in getting physically circumcised, Uh, The Israelites were saying, by faith, Lord, I'm in need of a new heart that only you can give. My sin must be cut off. I must be made new. So circumcision demonstrated the grace of God. Proof number two, being baptized into Christ. Being baptized into Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter six, verses three and four. Here in this place, Paul is showing us what happened to us when we were baptized by the Holy Spirit. So not not physical baptism here, but spiritual baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Spiritual baptism is equivalent to spiritual circumcision. Our sinful nature was put away in in Christ's death. And when the Spirit baptized us, he united us to Christ in such a way where just like Christ was raised from the dead, now we have brand new life, a new heart. So in getting baptized, we're saying, Lord, I believe that you have put my sinful nature to death in Christ. And now by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, you have made me a new creation. Baptism demonstrates that salvation was entirely a work of God's grace. Now, what that means is that sacraments are not merit badges. 
They're not signs of how great we're doing. They're signs of how great God is. They're grace badges. They reveal that with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So for those outsiders to be circumcised and to come into the covenant, they were saying the same thing that modern men say today when they're baptized. They say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, not because of my works, not because of my skin color, not because of anything deserving of me. The only thing that I deserve is death and hell. But I trust in your son. And I submit to this baptism as a sign that you have washed me, you've forgiven me of all my sin. And as a seal, you will never leave me nor forsake me. Help me now to walk as a new man. So that's our doctrine that the sacraments show the grace of God. So let's look then to our duty. And our first duty is to simply consider why the sacraments have changed. Why are they different today? Why is circumcision no longer required, Galatians 5, 6? Why is baptism now the sacrament of initiation into the new covenant, Matthew 28, 19? Why did Jesus take Passover and refashion it into the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 17 through 27 through 29? Well, since sacraments are signs, they must be consistent with the thing they are signifying. Signs must be consistent with the thing they are signifying. Again, this is why we don't do Twinkies and Coca-Cola for Lord's Supper. It wouldn't signify correctly. Circumcision always resulted in blood. It screamed that blood must be shed for sinners. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But The blood shed at physical circumcision was never sufficient to forgive one sin. It pointed to the truth that someone else's sin must be shed, someone greater. And when Jesus was crucified on that tree, when he was circumcised, when he was cut off from the land of the living, the last words that he spoke were, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Redemption was completed. And what that said was that no more blood would ever need to be shed. Not one single drop. It was no longer fitting to have a sign that shed blood. And so God ordained that the bloody sign of circumcision would be changed into the bloodless sign of baptism. In a similar way, the Passover meal in which the lamb was sacrificed, in which the blood was smeared on the door, its body was eaten, that sacrament was changed into the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ was what every Passover lamb pointed to. What were John the Baptist's first recorded words? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
It would be unfitting to continue to slay a lamb today because Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And so therefore God ordained that this bloody ritual of Passover be changed into a bloodless sacrament of bread and wine. Now, what we should be able to see is that the essence underneath the hood, the sacraments are saying the same thing, but the outward elements um, have changed in order to maintain the truth of the gospel. So the Old Testament sacraments, they pointed forward to a bloody Savior to come. And the New Testament sacraments the bloodless ones are pointing backward to the Savior who said it's already finished. But there's still an order that needs to be followed, isn't there? It's, it's, it's quite surprising to today to find many in the church today, not our church, but, but although I've certainly been guilty of this, of, of not getting baptized, but coming to the table. That, that's equivalent to, to skipping circumcision, yet, yet eating the Passover. Uh, clearly, our passage doesn't allow that. Now, again, I, I've actually made this same error in this particular church, uh, not in this building, but, but when Monica and I first started coming to the well uh, decades and decades ago, um, I brought Josiah to the table. I'd never been taught on it. I'd never been taught that there was an order here. He wasn't even baptized yet. I I think he was a believer. But I was never taught this in the church. Here, congregation, this is why passages like this exist. The order is important because the sacraments tell a story. This is why whenever we do Lord's Supper here, we say, only baptized believers are welcome to come to the supper. This is not about like crossing our theological T's and dotting our theological I's. It's, it's loving. It's loving to exclude people who are not yet united to Christ by saving faith. When we fence the table, we're doing precisely what God commanded Moses to do. Those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, which is then publicly expressed through baptism are outside of salvation. And it's loving to declare that truth so that they might believe and be saved. And additionally, the the order matters because otherwise we're telling another story. Before one can commune with Jesus at the Lord's Supper, before one can have a meal of peace with him, they need to be washed and forgiven of their sin. So baptism first, washing first, then the Lord's Supper, then a meal of peace. So that order maintains that salvation is not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Now, the sacraments are are precious signs and seals of the covenant of grace. But hear me here. They do not save us. No right practice of the sacraments can save us. Only Christ can, but they are unspeakable means of grace. Westminster Confession of Faith says that when we practice them rightly, chapter 27, paragraph 1, they confirm our interest in Christ. 
They put a visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. They're, they're, the, they're fuel, like the word is, for spiritual life. So that brings us then to our, our second duty, which is to, to answer a difficulty. And it goes like this. Here's the difficulty. Those who practice infant baptism should also practice infant or paedo-communion. The qualification for Passover in the Old Testament was circumcision, and then they could come to the table. Therefore, once our infants are baptized, they should also be immediately qualified for the table. Now, this, this view is growing in popularity today, though it was almost universally rejected by the Reformers, and it's not affirmed by any of the Reformed confessions, and for good reason, uh, because the New Testament has given us specific commands that regulate the table. All persons coming to the table must do it in remembrance of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 24, and 25. They must profess faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. They must be able to discern the body, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Infants cannot do that. Now, this doesn't necessarily exclude young children from coming to the table so long as they can profess in a faith that corresponds with their age and with their ability. The large catechism says, question 177, that the Lord's Supper is to be administered only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. The Lord's Supper does not work magically. It doesn't operate as a means of grace apart from the faith of the recipient. So that brings us to our third duty, duty then, to examine ourselves. And I'm just going to read the words of the Puritan Matthew Henry here because they're so good. Have we, by faith in him, sheltered our souls from deserved vengeance under the protection of Christ's atoning blood? Have we come under the blood? Do we keep close to Christ, constantly depending upon him? Do we so profess our faith in the Redeemer and our obligations to him that all who pass by us may know to whom we belong? Do we stand prepared for his service, ready to walk in his ways and to separate ourselves from his enemies? These are questions of vast importance to the soul. May the Lord direct our consciences honestly to answer him. That brings us then to our last duty, which is that we need to warn all those who do not have faith in Christ. In verse 46, we read that the Passover lamb was to be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. Sounds a, sounds a little superstitious unless you recognize that it points to something, right? 
The lamb was not for anyone outside of the household of faith. Surely this teaches us that anyone who is outside of faith is not under the blood of the lamb and they can't be saved. They are in the same position as the Egyptians on Passover night in danger of the wrath of a holy God. There's one law for the native and for the stranger. There's one law for all men. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Or John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe, the wrath of God remains on him. So that brings us then to our third and last heading, which is our delight. This passage actually brings uh, incredible and unspeakable comfort. Because what it says is that it doesn't matter what your past life was like. It doesn't matter what your lineage is like. It doesn't matter who your ancestors are. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. Loved ones, some of these very Egyptian sojourners would have been guilty of the most grotesque and unimaginable sins. There's a list in Leviticus 18. They were guilty of incest, of polygamy, of adultery, of infanticide, of homosexuality, of bestiality, of idolatry of every kind. And yet... These great sinners who left Egypt, God declared that there was one law of salvation for them, one law to enter into the covenant of God, and that's faith. When we come to the New Testament, we find the exact same rule, John 1, 12 through 13, but to all those who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of bloodlines, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation does not come through having the right ancestors. It doesn't come by making the right choices in life, because if it did, we're all going to hell. Loved ones, you are saved entirely and completely and irrevocably the moment that you first trusted in Christ. And when you were baptized, God's triune name was sealed upon you. And whenever you come to the supper, we eat it together. The Lord Jesus is eating and drinking that meal of peace with us. The truth is, is that there is no one in this room, no one globally, No one who does not have a past that is polluted and corrupted and twisted with sin. You know, you get to the genealogies of the New Testament. This is why the genealogy of Jesus is so encouraging. Do you know who his ancestors were? Do you know who was in his line? People who lied and deceived, who committed incest, Jesus came from an incestual relationship with Judah. We just read this a few weeks ago, didn't we? 
Prostitution was in his line, adultery, murder, child sacrifice, and yet Jesus was not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He was the Lamb of God who took away their sin. Dear congregation, whatever your past is, the Lamb of God has taken away your sin. Your sin does not make you less qualified for salvation. The Israelites were every bit as guilty as the Egyptians, and yet there was one law for both the Jew and the Gentile, and it's belief. Come into the covenant by faith. Be marked publicly by the sacrament of baptism. Feast off of the supper. All is well. You've been redeemed. You've been marked by the blood. God's wrath has been satisfied. And perhaps, perhaps it's that last part that you're not quite sure of. God's wrath has been satisfied. Well, perhaps you've, you've believed in Christ, but your, your past sin still haunts you. Don't you find yourself like that sometimes? Like you're driving and all of a sudden a fleeting thought comes into your head about some wicked thing that you did and your heart just collapses under the weight of that guilt. The devil still accuses you and perhaps you think, well, maybe God is still angry with me. Perhaps there's still some sin left to suffer for. Perhaps there's a Protestant version of purgatory. Well, look at our passage again. In our passage, we have new information that can clear that troubled conscience. New information about how they were to prepare the lamb. End of verse 46 says, you shall not break any of its bones. That's a cure for the troubled conscience, loved ones. How? Well, in any other day of the year when they were butchering a lamb, what was inevitable is that they would break bones in the butchering process. Anyone of you who has ever cleaned an animal before, from start to finish, it's inevitable to break bones. It's inevitable to cut through bones. And that was completely forbidden. This lamb was to be prepared, no broken bones, full. And there's two reasons for this. Number one, because this lamb had to be without blemish, Exodus 12, 5. If Jesus was broken, if he was broken in any way by sin, his death would mean nothing. It's his sinless life that gives value to his sacrificial death. And number two... This lamb was not to be butchered, but to be offered up as a whole sacrifice. Exodus 12, 9 says, with its head, with its legs, with its inward parts. And this signified that Jesus suffered entirely, completely, body and soul. Nothing was broken off. Nothing was left behind. And this is exactly how Jesus died. Turn quickly with me as we, as we come to a close to John 19.31. This is immediately after Jesus already died. Since it was John 19.31, since it was the day of preparation, the very day of Passover, when they'd be preparing the lambs, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Quick note, 
the breaking of legs of those who were crucified sped up their death. As they were nailed to the cross, they were stretched out, and the only way they could breathe was push up on the nails. And it was excruciatingly painful. That's why this was a masterful way to torture criminals. And after hours and hours, they were exhausted and they could no longer push themselves up and they died of suffocation. Well, when they broke the legs, they would die very, very quickly. Continuing. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Christ's legs were not broken. He, in other words, he did not have an accelerated death. He received no mercy. He suffered entirely in his body and in his soul for all of our sin. All of God's wrath has been completely satisfied. And that is the cure for your troubled conscience. His legs were not broken. He suffered fully. All of your most evil sins, your most shameful sins, the sins, the, the secret sins that you want no one to know about, the most wicked deeds were all placed on the unbroken body of Christ. And so when your conscience is condemning you, when the devil is accusing you, you look to Jesus. Not one of his bones were broken. He stayed alive long enough to make sure that all of the wrath of God was swallowed up in victory. So then how do we respond to this message? What's the takeaway? Well, what did God call Israel to do? Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. That is Passover. In the same way God is calling us today, all of the congregation shall keep the Lord's Supper. That is baptized believers when they come together. And this stresses two important things. Number one, the absolute importance of corporate worship. The absolute importance of corporate worship. Certainly all of us should be worshiping as individuals. But the essence of Christian worship is corporate. It's a, a lone ranger Christian is a contradiction. It would be like a man trying to have a family without a wife and without children. Pets are not family members, by the way. It's an ongoing debate in our house. <laughs> when Jesus died, he saved the entire family of God. And he intended that the family of God would come together and worship together. Secondly, our charge is that when we come together to eat the supper, we need to remember that this is not an individualistic ritual. 
The Lord's Supper is not everybody with their heads bowed and their eyes closed, take the meal, and you're in this you know, vacuum all by yourself. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. When was the last time you had Thanksgiving and you did it with your eyes closed? I'm not, I'm not saying it's not okay to pray during the Lord's Supper. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying it's corporate. Um, it's with... The communion is with all the saints in heaven, all the saints on earth, and this local congregation. It's communion with Christ. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. It's a meal to be shared. It's a family meal. It's a meal that nourishes our communion with Christ and our communion with each other. So let's pray. Father, we are so amazed the wisdom of your word, at the consistency of your word, at the grace of your word. Lord, that we would never think that the Old Testament saints were saved by obedience to the law, and now that Christ has come, we're saved by grace. No, Lord, there's one law for the Jew and the Gentile, one son one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. And so, Lord, help us to see our oneness with each other, our oneness with the saints in heaven, our oneness with the global church, 